The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Joe Littler to discuss meritocracy and the neoliberal era. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter at Poll Theory Other. And if you've been enjoying the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Joe Littler is a reader in the Centre for Culture and Creative Industries and Director of Research in the Department of Sociology at City University London. She is the author of Radical Consumption, Shopping for Change in Contemporary Culture, and more recently, Against Meritocracy, Culture, Power and Myths of Mobility, published by Routledge, which form the basis for our discussion today. So Joe, you begin your book with a discussion of the history of the idea of meritocracy and and you point out that before it's more modern usage, it can be identified in the discourse of the re-established French Republic after the crushing of the Paris Commune in 1871, which, as you describe, after the defeat of the Communards, the new regime declared that careers would be open to talents which is certainly reminiscent of, uh, of more modern usage of the term. Uh, could you say something on the history of the notion of meritocracy and where do you think lies the point at which the idea is deployed in its uh, more modern sense? Yeah, so in the book I talk about the emergence of meritocracy both as a word and as an older concept. Um, so it becomes coined as a word in the 1950s. It's stereotypically ascribed to Michael Young. Um, with his book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, popularised the term. But there is an earlier usage by an industrial sociologist called Alan Fox, who used it in a far more critical socialist sense. Um, and so I, in the book, I, kinda, I, I track the, the etymology of the, of the word, um, looking at how it's moved from being a term that was pretty much a term of abuse, you know, in, but for Alan Fox, meritocracy is ridiculous. It's impossible. You know, why would you, why would you have a social system in which you gave prizes to the already prodigiously gifted? Um, to Michael Young's, perhaps you know, savage satire, but nonetheless a little bit more more gentle, less of a overt critique of capitalism in there. And in 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 some ways, it's quite an obtuse text that's difficult to extract a clear argument from. Um, but it was nonetheless in the 1950s, you know, it was it, it was it was a critical term for Hannah Arendt. Meritocracy was something that was, uh, you know, it contradicts the principle of equality of an equalitarian democracy, no less than any other oligarchy. It's something that's unfair, transparently. Um, and then gradually through the 70s, it becomes adopted by um, people like Daniel Bell, the theorist of the knowledge economy who uses it as something positive he thinks it might be something productive with which to work to produce you know economic growth in the terms of you know using the knowledge economy and the creative economy to mobilize uh, the idea of 
talent and 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 growth in a far more capitalist way then it becomes picked up by right-wing think tanks from the 80s as a as a, a term which might seem to appear fair um and which has also has some traction to um help the argument for privatization so it becomes used in a pamphlet called meritocracy in the classless society where the argument is basically to um to to launch an attack on comprehensive schools and to try and think about how you might break up the monopoly of the system how you might increase privatization in the education sector so the term pretty much means the same thing but it has very different value systems attached to it etymologically as a word from the 1950s onwards um, and loosely i kind of periodize this as meritocracy is in its social democracy period and then meritocracy in its more neoliberal period from the 70s and 80s onwards um, but you can of course trace back the 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 concept further so as a justification for vast inequality you know it's it's you can you can trace that discourse back in various ways you can trace it back to just after the french revolution um, you can trace back certain elements of the discourse like if we think of meritocracy as meaning um, hard work a graft plus talent equals your ability to climb a social ladder and you can trace back different elements of that formulation further so you might trace back for example the idea of open access exams to imperial china you might trace back the discourse of hard work meaning that you can make it up a social ladder to uh, like think about how that works in 19th century um, london for example in 19th century britain in terms of samuel smiles discourse about self-help or how it works in the States in terms of consumerism and the American dream, the idea that if you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps again, you can you can make it. So I was I focused in particular on how on its meaning in the, the, the modern period since the mid 20th century. But I'm very conscious that it has these longer etymologies. Um, it's been used as a kind of alibi for capitalism for a longer time in many different ways. And that the elements of the discourse, which, you know, if you extrapolate them, can be progressive as well as regressive, have much longer and broader geographical and historical roots. Regarding Daniel Bell, you point out that his advocacy of, of meritocracy was in quite a different context from the, the neoliberal one. So he's deploying the term in the context of the post-war social democratic consensus, a period where there's relatively generous welfare pr- provision and, and, and so on. Um, and in your book, you argue that to some extent, neoliberal meritocracy depends on this shared collective memory of the era of social democracy in which class barriers were somewhat eroded and it did seem plausible that if you worked hard you could do well regardless of 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 where you were born in the class hierarchy since that hierarchy didn't seem as stratified as it is now um clearly this didn't apply to everyone it wasn't especially true regarding race and gender certainly but but is that a a correct reading of, of what you're saying yeah so i think for daniel bell um, it's it's quite easy to advocate competitive system of meritocracy um, as an engine of social growth when you in a period where you have a very strong social safety net in the form of the welfare state, even though there's obviously differences in the welfare state between um, <clears throat> different parts of Europe and, and the states. You know, you have the, the, the results of the New Deal there, you have strong and weak social democracy in Europe. And it's, it's easier to, to launch an argument for competitive individualistic meritocracy 
at that moment and to yoke it, to articulate it to futurity, to modernity, to being forward looking, because you have this this very strong social safety net on which to fall back. And I do think, yes, that that to some extent that that still is in play, you know, the, the, the idea, if not the reality that we have a kind of strong backing we have this level playing field is, is another motif which is commonly mobilized around meritocracy um you know people like Theresa may will argue that what she wants to produce is is a level playing field from which people can rise and of course that's completely ludicrous because she wants to make a vastly uneven playing field where some people are at the bottom of pit and other people are at the top of a skyscraper but nonetheless as, as a motif as a kind of metaphor it does rest it does still rest on this shared memory of, kind of welfare state equality which which is interesting to think about isn't it the extent to which that's part of people's emotional um, beliefs and legacies at the same time as competitive meritocracy has become normalized so the extent to which you know um, the kind of the idea of the nhs is is still so something that, that people feel most proud of, isn't it, in Britain, in the recent Ipsos Mori survey, at the same time as the idea that we are competitive individual subjects and it's our own fault if we don't get on, has also been something that has been polled to be found out as, you know, pretty much hegemonic in contemporary culture. So, yeah, so I think that's, that's um, an important point. Do you think it's perhaps significant that millennials have have less of a memory of that social democratic culture and that that might partially explain their comparative radicalism um at least in the in the uk yeah i think that's true i think that's true for a lot of millennials though obviously not all millennials it's not something we can easily homogenize together but to them it's very clear that the the lacunae the, the gap between the imaginary memory of what the welfare state and its brute reality of it not being there is 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 very powerful isn't it so the chasm between the discourse and the reality is more brute for that cohort so in the book you talk about how meritocracy is quite a malleable term that it's deployed in different ways and that the concept mutates over time um what do you think is the the difference between the way the concept is deployed today as compared with some of the other areas that you talk about in the book? Um, I'm thinking in particular of the uh, conservative governments of the 80s and the early 90s and then the Blair era and then the era of um, of the uh, Lib Dem conservative coalition. Yeah, so I look at I look at meritocracy as an idea of a social system. So I'm interested in how Firstly, you might think about that social system as impossible um, in that it it, it, mobil- it mobilises this idea of a level playing field, yet at the same time it's completely wound up with the idea of vastly differential economic rewards for your place in the social hierarchy and your, your supposed achievement, um, which, is, which is completely antithetical to the idea of a level playing field because if you become immensely rich, people tend to pass on those riches to their children and then you have as far away from a level playing field as you can possibly imagine. So I think I find it helpful to separate out the idea of meritocracy as on the one hand, a social system, and on the other hand, an idea, an ideology, a set of discourses. But really they're bound up because it is this, you know, as I said, it's impossible. So it is the, this mythical idea 
in a way too. Um, but I find it in, I find it interesting to think about how this discourse works and how it functions and how it's mobilised and differently articulated or manifest in different times and places, because I think it's you know I come out of cultural studies, so I think I'm kind of tr trained and I think it, I find it's the most useful way to think about. A, a subject in terms of thinking about how it's shaped in from different spheres from different areas so when I was thinking about how meritocracy was formulated I thought about how it was formulated in the sphere of party politics and political pronouncements and then also how it's mobilized and formed in popular culture um, at the same time um, as well as through like everyday discourse and, and speech so I, I obviously you can't map that you know it's, it's structurally impossible but i wanted to take a, a a kind of snapshot of how it was being used at different times and places and how it had evolved um in britain since the kind of mid 20th century which is like broadly the focus so i i thought about how it had meritocracy has been mobilized in terms of different party political leaders discourse uh, and self-presentation in terms of the kind of political rhetoric that they were pushing forward and the personas that they were presenting of themselves. So I look at how, for example, um, in the Thatcher era, she is presenting herself very much as a socially mobile subject. You know, we, we kind of think of, you know, she, she was very keen to present herself as the, the daughter of a grocer who kind of made it, who was a housewife, who knew what it was like to be normal and everyday, um, yet somehow made it up the, up the ladder of, like, you know, the, as a good meritocrat should. So we tend to kind of think of her with, with in, in terms of that image rather than as the, the person who died in immense riches at the Ritz, which is, of course, another significant facet of what and who she was. Um, so I was interested in how for Thatcher she was very much kind of mobilising the 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 classed subject, um, and she's kind of pitching that towards women as well, especially even though she's not by any stretch of the imagination anything approaching a feminist. Um, so Thatcher kind of mobilises this idea of uh, a new terrain of socially a space where you can be a socially mobile subject um, which suggests that the old establishment the elites should be deposed and replaced with meritocrats to some extent you know she's very kind of anti-establishment in that way um so that that's that's kind of that moment and of course that's also the moment which which, which produces lots of kind of embryonic privatization um, which removes council housing, stock of council housing and flogs it off, which starts to sell public utilities and privatise them, which starts to flog off the, you know, the family silver of the state, as it were. Um, so that is a kind of significant moment in how meritocracy is presented politically. Um, of course, it's not, it doesn't really address racism at all. It's, it's a racist moment. And it offers offers women a kind of consumerist subjectivity, a consumerist way to climb through the social pile, which I still think is really significant and hasn't isn't perhaps remembered as much as it should be. So there's some really interesting work done in the 1980s, for example, by Janet Newman, where she looks at how um, women are encouraged to be enterprising subjects 
and and that was that was the kind of bargain really that Thatcher was offering wasn't it the way in which women could be included in the public sphere to a greater extent um, by participating in a very entrepreneurial capitalist consumerist society um, so that, there's that moment of meritocracy um, but as you know as I said you know, to, to some extent she, the, the idea of her as you know someone that made it from the bottom isn't particularly convincing whereas to John Major's persona is a little bit more because he he was you know he, he didn't go to university he hasn't really got access to that Oxbridge background that a lot of other Tory MPs of his generation had. So in some ways, Major is a more convincing meritocrat than Thatcher was. But in other ways, he is um, very keen to kind of use anti-meritocratic discourse against women in particular. So he he doesn't, there's, there's no attempt really to kind of draw on, um, you know, the kind of language around gender. Um, that, that Thatcher gestures towards in her corporate way. Whereas once you get to the kind of Blairite years, the years of New Labour, that's, it's, it's very much what I, I think of as kind of neoliberal meritocracy in full flush, where the discourse is directly drawing from kind of anti-sexist, anti-racist movements of the 60s and kind of trying to incorporate that into its imaginary and narrative of how you might be a competitive consumerist subject who makes it up the social pile. Um, and they're also at the same time thinking about how you might level this playing field. So I think it's interesting to look at what New Labour is doing in terms of meritocracy because it popularises an anti-sexist, anti-racist, corporate capitalist version of meritocracy in which we all need to be aggressive, competitive, neoliberal subjects. And they also, they do want to, to some extent, try to level the playing field um, because you could think about how their most popular pledges that are still, you know, people talk about are the Sure Start campaign, uh, the provision of nursery schools and, sorry, nursery centres and daycare and the, the pledges towards child poverty. So obviously they don't do, they don't tackle the, the, the immense riches of, they don't tackle capitalism, they let it flourish, but they, there's an ex a way in which they they want to produce this kind of corporate narrative of meritocracy which is anti-sexist anti-racist and tries to tries to fiddle with the, the playing field at, at one end then after that you have you kind of move into what i think of as a more um punitive system of meritocracy so you could think about how under cameron for example um cameron adopts the discourse that that Lytton Crosby popularised in Australia of strivers and skivers um, of, you know, the idea that if you're, you're not striving, if you're not, if you're not kind of pushing yourself and your children up this social ladder, if you're not participating in corporate meritocracy, you are failing. And he, interestingly, he positions labour and socialism itself as automatically failing the country and failing children within a distinct you know, within this imaginary of meritocracy as well. So, so for Cameron, it's much more punitive. I think that's the advent of a much more, more punitive uh, era in neoliberal meritocracy. And then Theresa May is different again. So obviously the policies continue to be punitive, very much so. Um, 
and but I think that the language, particularly at the beginning, was quite interesting because she talked about trying to, you know, help. It's a bit Barack Obama. It's a bit kind of anti-sexist, anti-racist, neoliberal. She talks about how we're going to help um, black kids on council estates, how we're going to help poor white working class boys make it. So she deliberately tries to talk about people who have what I think of as a meritocratic deficit. And she talks about how they're going to, the, the conservatives were going to apparently, you know, help them up the social ladder, help them be competitive and, and learn to succeed. Um, so so the, the ways in which those political discourses mutate, I think there's this strong kind of threads that you can trace between them and through them and across them. But I think it's also useful to track them because they show how the idea uh, of meritocracy, of neoliberal meritocracy, is is very very supple and can mutate in 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 very distinct and kind of quite quite extreme ways at times to be to use to be used to substantiate capitalism, contemporary capitalism. So, regarding a fairly recent mutation of the ideology of of meritocracy. Around the time of Barack Obama's uh, election to the presidency in the US, we had what some termed a, uh, a post-racial moment, a moment in which it was perceived that the problems of race had been largely overcome and that American society was, was open to, to people regardless of their, their ethnic background. Um, and there was also a, a, a similar uh, discourse around feminism and, and the idea of a sort of post-feminist situation in which really the problems of, of, uh, of, of gender inequality and, and patriarchy had, had been superseded. Um, but now we're in a very different situation. We're post-Black Lives Matter. Uh, we've had the Me Too movement. And, and clearly significant sections of, 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 of elites have not sought to pretend that problems of inequality haven't persisted, um, but they've instead adapted their ideology to this new terrain. Could you describe how the ideology of meritocracy has mutated in this new situation? Yeah, that's right. It's really changed in terms of gender and racialization, the way in which meritocracy is formulated. So I think in in the past few years, in particular, it's it's become the case that it's um, obviously increasingly difficult for mainstream media outlets and, and corporations to ignore the brute realities of racism and sexism, and to some extent class inequalities as well. Um, so that I, I mean the the first part of the, of, of the book pretty much traces some of the, the genealogies of meritocracy as a concept in social theory and its movement in political rhetoric and its relationship to the welfare state and to jobs, etc. And the second part, I try to think about how it functions in relation to popular culture and look at a series of case studies around the rich um, around racialization and around gender. So I use, um, with, with ethnicity, I, I think about um, Matt Damon and an incident that happened um, with the TV show Project Greenlight in the States, which is very much part of that post-racial moment that you're talking about. Um, so what happened were, was the reality TV show Project Greenlight, uh, which was set up by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, um, was very much designed to be a kind of meritocratic reality TV show 
which popularised the idea. You know, it kind of worked from the premise that Hollywood is a very difficult place to get into to make feature films and the, the show was going to offer a kind of ladder to that top by offering amateur filmmakers the chance to climb it, to scale it and to make their own feature film through a process of fruit competition. Um, but it came to be the case in the, after the first couple of series that what happened was that there were a, a panel of pretty much all white men judging white male filmmakers, which um, became widely critiqued. And so when the show was brought back for another season a bit later, they tried to diversify the judging panel and they brought in um, the producer of Dear White People, Effie Brown. And there was a moment when Effie raised the issue in the, in the later series around uh, the, the, the casting of the, of the show. And she talked about the way in which uh, the script, for example, that but one film producer had presented uh, only showed black characters where, who, who were pimps. And she was saying, you know, is it just the case that we just want to have white guys involved in, in, in the contest? You know, don't we need to think about diversity? Don't we need to just perhaps consider it as an issue? And she was really shut down by Matt Damon, who said, that's not how we do diversity in film production. Um, we do it. We don't do it at this stage. It's not relevant. It's not important. And this is before Oscar So White, and it's before the Harvey Weinstein controversy really exploded. So, but I think it's an important part of that story. It led to it because the the reaction to Matt Damon, you know, Damon splaining was was the word that was used on social media because it was mansplaining, it was white splaining, and it was celebrity splaining as well. And um, the reaction to that was was kind of both vitriolic and humorous. Uh, there were tweets which said things like, you know, can Matt tell me, tell, can Matt Damon tell me a good stylist to get my locks tended? You know, can Matt Damon tell me why the cage bird sings, etc. Um, so that's, he's kind of, it kind of exploded that idea of a kind of post-racial moment. Um, and it, it showed very clearly as, as the kind of whole history of that reality TV show shows, if you look at it, that some of the massive institutional prejudices that exist within the production of popular culture industry. Um, so, so I think that's that's kind of interesting in terms of of how a particular kind of neoliberal meritocratic formation can be called out. Now, what happens after that um, is interesting too, because I think that also shows the tenacity. Of, of how neoliberal meritocratic discourse can mutate, can, can kind of adopt new clothes, can, can be quite supple and try to take new forms and become something new. Because you have uh, the emergence of what I think of as uh, neoliberal justice narratives, where corporations in particular identify um, inequalities in much the same way that Theresa May does when she comes to power. And what they do, instead of offering you a system whereby they get rid of that brute poverty, whereby they, they make everyone's life chances more equitable and more fair, is that they offer highly individualised, competitive capitalist solutions again. So, and I think it's helpful to, to think about that in relation to meritocracy and to, to think that these are, you know, they're, they're justice narratives, they're, they're neoliberal justice narratives, um, which, which still work on the idea, on the premise that you have to individually graft and make it up 
this very difficult terrain yourself, it's your individual responsibility to do so. And that corporations are the best mechanism with, through, with and through which to achieve that. Um, so it, it kind of recognises the inequalities that exist, but it prescribes neoliberalism as a solution, neoliberal meritocracy as, as the mode through which you should survive. Your book was written after the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader, uh, but prior to the 2017 general election that really changed uh, Labour's electoral prospects. And at that point, you describe in the book how the Labour leadership had, had, had seemed to fail to really cut through with their message to the, the broader electorate. So in this new situation, what's your opinion of how the Labour leadership have tried to counter meritocratic narratives? Um, I'm thinking in particular of the, of the, the language of um, the rigged system and, and the slogan for the many, not the few and so on. And also, I wonder if you think that breaking out of a meritocratic way of understanding depends on the existence of an alternative political project as it almost seems that the more unequal a society is, the more important it is for people to believe that they have a chance of making it. And so the appeal of, of meritocratic notions is actually more desirable, um, especially in the absence of any sort of alternative collective project. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, the, you know, the idea that you, you should make it up yourself individually up, up the ladder is you know, directly part of the price that that people are are being paid to participate in a, a corporate social system isn't it you know as, as Raymond Williams said the kind of idea it sweetens the poison of hierarchy the idea that you you're promised this individualistic reward so yeah absolutely the more uh, kind of people can envisage and see uh, the alternative to neoliberal corporate meritocracy the the less it becomes thought of as viable um, and the as the only way of doing things you know to some extent it's very hard to, to see outside of it to a large extent because of the degree to which it's, it's normalized as an ideology so yeah absolutely I think it really does depend on on picking picking apart both picking apart the um, regressive poison of, of this ideology you know to, to think about what it's doing and I think that needs to be called out to a far greater degree by the Labour Labour Party and the Labour leadership. I mean, they, they've obviously made massive strides in doing so, and it's it's really exciting to have a, a viable alternative, which is um, you know, a potential to, for a socialist government, which is non-authoritarian, which is creative, which is anti-racist, anti-sexist, concerned about the environment. That's you know something that wasn't on the cards uh, a decade ago. So that's it's it's a very exciting moment. Um, but also, yeah, I think that the language is it needs quite a bit of work in terms of uh, moving from the policy objectives or mapping the policy objectives to structures of feeling to creating a, a language and a discourse which can cut through the corporate individualism that we're surrounded by in so many forms, uh, which can saturate our popular culture. Um, so. So not only, you know, making pronouncements as they, they have done, you know, really well on thinking about an alternative political economy and cooperatives, but thinking through and translating that into everyday language about what it might mean for for transport, for people's kids at school, um, for what it might mean when you, you know, buy do your local food shopping. 
I think that there needs to be some work in terms of the, the gap between policy and infrastructure and kind of a, a populist language, which is obviously hard when you have a media which is primarily Tory in the country and so much stacked against you. But um, yeah, I, I think that there have been there have been good moves towards changing the discourse uh, from meritocracy. So uh, an early example was Aspiration for All, which uh, kind of moves away from individualistic competition. But it's, you know, to some extent, it hasn't really got as much of a charge as I would hope. It hasn't really um, quite gesture towards the, the degree of cooperation and mutuality and sharing that I think needs to be foregrounded to counter the kind of savagery of individualistic meritocratic competition. I suppose one concern that people might have might be that rather than developing a more collective self-understanding, some people might be drawn to Labour because they simply see Labour as more able to fulfil meritocratic individualism. So in a sense that they might make it easier for people to, to you know, buy their own home or to, you know, just generally get on in life. But without questioning the extremely individualistic nature of, of neoliberal society. Do you think that this is a problem for Labour? Well, I think it's an issue for Labour in which, in the sense that they have to, to work with, the, you know, the, the social structure that exists um, and it obviously you, you know you can't you have you have to work with people's narratives and understandings um, but I think there are, there are ways of, of pushing the language a bit more and ways of thinking about how you might translate it into uh, more generalized social settings um, to to a greater extent so for example we might think about the extent to which entrepreneurialism, which which wholly means competitive corporate entrepreneurialism that is in search of economic growth, really, um, has become popularised uh, through through reality TV shows, through through schools. You can think about you know what the, the, the immense damage that The Apprentice has done both on this side and the other side of the Atlantic is just phenomenal, and it's, it's global franchise as well. But, um, you know, you can think about the extent to which that tries to, you know, it tries to talk to people in ways that are completely understandable. So, the, you know, the idea that you might want to have, um, you know, invent your own project, invent your own enterprise. You can you completely understand why people will want to do that and how it, it break, marks a break with a kind of um, Fordist working system because it offers you some ability to set your own working hours. It offers you the opportunity the chance to work on something you you think is interesting that you want to do and to have a degree of agency over work so that entrepreneurial discourse kind of seizes on those elements and it kind of channels them solely into you know projects which are designed to plaster over the 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 effects of neoliberalism so you can think about how the idea of the mumpreneur um, which I talk about in the book is, you know, the, this motif of a woman who's had kids um, and she's she's got babies and she's working, setting at home, setting up a business on her kitchen table from her kitchen table whilst her kids are crawling beneath her. You know, this idea has been hugely popularised in women's magazines, in um, popular fiction, in the Daily Mail has a, a Mumpreneur of the Year award. Uh, and it's it's you know it kind of it does talk to all these different elements. It talks to all the problems in the existing social structure, 
and it's, it offers a solution which um, is is hugely corporate and and neoliberal. It's it's and but I think what so what we need to do is to try and think about the elements uh, that that are important. You know, so for example, I, 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 hard work isn't necessarily a negative thing on its own as long as you have enough holidays, um, and you know talent and ability is something which which should be nurtured so we need to and, and working hours that can be flexible and, and suit people and work around their lives are, are also important so i think we need to extrapolate the elements that we we kind of believe in and think about how they can be connected and articulated to more equitable community oriented social social structures which are about based around care rather than economic growth in the book, you talk about the way in which the 1% has sought to legitimise itself. And you've got these these wonderful uh, terms such as norm core plutocrats and norm core aristocrats. Um, c- could you explain what you mean by these terms? Yeah, so in, in the book, I, I talk about the rich and how the rich present themselves um, and how they draw on discourses of meritocracy to validate and justify themselves. Um, so I'm interested in how people with immense privilege still nonetheless use this idea that they climb the social ladder and deserve their position in the social hierarchy through their immense hard graft. Um, because it's, you know, you, you just have to look at how that it, it functions in terms of politicians. Trump uses it, you know, his immense wealth that he inherited is apparently isn't a factor. It's, it's all because he was a successful entrepreneurial thrusting businessman. Um, and you know Boris Johnson uses it, Cameron uses it. There, there is a way in which immense privilege is elided um, by ex- extrapolating this this quite this kind of if effect of kind of working class graft and stapling it to themselves. You know, even though they don't deserve it in any way, and 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 then kind of in doing so, participating in the idea of the social ladder and being being able to justify your position at the top of the hierarchy. So, um, so I was interested in how how that worked. And I looked in, in particular again at, at entrepreneurs, because I think that they offer some really interesting examples of how that functions. So for example, if you take someone um, like Duncan Bannatyne from Dragon's Den, um, he has, his autobiography is called Anyone Can Do It. And he talks about how he 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 kind of worked himself. He worked his way up. You know, he started at the bottom. He had a nice cream van. He worked really hard. You know, gradually he took over. He set up spa clubs and set up sports centres. And it's this story of you know, it's, it's kind of being savvy. It's using your using your nous. It's you know, working, not relying on people. The discourse of not relying on people is is huge, isn't it? Um, and and mobilizing your skill and your and your graph together to to reach the top and to somehow deserving these these vast these vast amounts of wealth that you accumulate. But if you look at the story from another angle, as we obviously should do, you can see that you know he he made his money primarily from parts of the welfare state that were being privatized. So you know, for instance, care homes and local authority health facilities that were being sold off so you can kind of 
unpack that and tell a very different story about it. And, and we need to do that, I think. And I think, you know, Labour needs to do that to a much greater extent. We need to kind of point out the extent to which we're being lied to um, by billionaires repeatedly off and, you know, sold stories about Britain by offshore billionaires like the Barclay brothers. Um, so, I, yeah, in the book, so I think about how, what I call norm core plutocrats, about how these, these um, elites with vast amounts of riches legitimise themselves in, in these terms by using the discourse of meritocracy and by, by presenting themselves as ordinary, um, which has a history. You know, it's been it's kind of done in different ways historically, the rich presenting themselves as somehow being normal. But I think it's much more thoroughly and aggressively and uh, kind of, creatively presented today than it has been before um so yeah so i was interested in how what i call norm core plutocrats present themselves and i think that can be extended to think about uh, norm aristocrats as well and royalty so you might think about how um aristocrats present themselves as ordinary people how wills and kate have you know <coughs> kind of mobilized the the apparent legacy of Diana to present themselves as, you know, ordinary people, ordinary upper class, upper middle class people who would shop at Bowdoin, um, who would be relaxed on a chat show, um, who, you know, kind of present themselves to to middle England as kind of successful meritocrats in a way. And, and there's some really interesting work being done around this at the moment. So there's uh, people like Laura Clancy working on the image the way in which the royal family presents itself as every day you know how the the younger royals choose images of themselves in their garden um for example rather than at grand state occasions so um yeah so i think there's there, there is a kind of it's important to to think about how um the the ultra rich are legitimizing their wealth by presenting themselves as 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 normal as every day as deserving deserving their riches of having made it up the social ladder and that of course is you know something that the whole discourse around Meghan Markle as well participates in connects to yeah I mean my uh, immediate thought was that um, having Meghan marry into the family was just you know a genius PR move on the part of the royals I mean I'm sure it wasn't but it, you know it it, it, uh, it couldn't be sort of scripted better from from their perspective I thought yeah, absolutely. In some way, it looks like it, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it's kind of amazing to think about Harry's image has, has kind of shifted from the Nazi stag-loving prince to, um, you know, upper-class, respectable boy, Kensington boy about town. Um, but yeah, I think that's it is interesting, isn't it? That you, I mean, it's much more difficult to imagine him going out with a, a black woman from London than it is you know you know she is that her being american is really significant um and it's part it shows the extent to which they are the, the kind of part of this cosmopolitan celebrity formation that you know just like bono and bill gates kind of depends on on an image of glamorous cosmopolitan caring um to substantiate themselves and to you know both make them look ordinary and to look like they're giving enough back to disguise the vast amounts that they're actually taking and whether it should be taken in the first place. 
You have in the book this very interesting explanation as to why Prince Charles is unable to situate himself in a similar way to the other royals, in particular figures like Harry and Meghan, and, and, but also the Queen as well. And you relate this in particular to the fact that he's quite a political person. Um, could you explain what it is that, that, um, that is the cause of his sort of enduring unpopularity? Yeah, Prince Charles is quite interesting because his ham-fisted interventions into politics are, you know, kind of irritating for for liberals because he's far too too wealthy, uh, irritating for left liberals because he's far too wealthy. Um, um, but at the same time, they kind of they they contravene the the, the code almost that's been built up around. Um, <clears throat> The, the royals appearing as as somehow guaranteed, you know, as 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 not as having earned it in a way through this this the way in which they're selectively borrowing tropes from meritocracy, um, and you know that they they're norm core aristocrats. They're just ordinary people who are, are, that happen to be very wealthy. They look just like you and me. Um, they deserve it because they're so glamorous and they give things back. But the kind of contract there is that you you shouldn't be too political, you shouldn't really intervene. And the, the, the Prince Charles's pronouncements are kind of interesting, I think, in a way, because they do kind of contravene that code. They do put him into the political sphere in a way that everyone is uncomfortable with because it raises a whole series of other questions um, about power and politics, it, despite itself. Obviously, he doesn't want to do that. Um, but the, the royals aren't supposed to to intervene in in that domain. It kind of raises raises the question of of power despite itself. Why do you think that the discourse and ideology of meritocracy is such an important thing for us to interrogate in uh, in this historical moment? Well, I guess I think I think it's it's useful to pull apart the idea of meritocracy for a number of reasons um, because most particularly because it's kind of one of the key ideological alibis for late capitalism and I think that's why we need to pay attention to how it works and its supple mutations and the way in which it can appeal to us at a psychological as well as a political level you know how it's, it's, it's how it functions in psychosocial terms um, I also think it's important to pick apart, uh, pick apart it in the sense that we need to think about what what elements of it are might be valuable if we connect it to different forms of social system. Um, so, for example, it, I think it's important to to point out that you know it's skill, it's a well trained skill is important. So, no, I'm not saying that everyone can be a brain surgeon. It's and it's it's more about the the issues which get connected together so we don't need this individualized ladder of achievement uh, we need to think about how we can um, not only work individually but collectively most importantly um, I, I'm, I worry about how meritocracy often mobilizes a very essentialized idea of talent it doesn't always but it often suggests that your talent is innate um, not subject to change um, I worry about how it ex the existing idea of meritocracy ex extends hierarchies of social worth. So it, the, w the way in which different professions are rewarded is based around economic growth, yet we're encouraged to believe 
that it that's somehow what progress means you know that being an entrepreneur is more important than being a nurse or a vat and you know that's that's something that really needs to be picked apart and tackled um so yeah so it's it's the the issue of how economic growth and economic reward vast economic rewards get pegged to different professions um extending the extent of people's atomization extending the gap between different jobs and roles extending the pressures on people in general and in particular extending the pressure on people who are already very overpressured so it's the people who are are most socially disadvantaged who are most you know uh, kind of it's most uh, at risk and at most who are suffering most from massive social inequality who are addressed most intensely by this discourse you are encouraged to believe that it is all about them and that's a huge amount of pressure to put on people individually as well as no way to run a social system <clears throat> so i um yeah so meritocracy is one part of a, a broader picture I, I think it's an important part and i think it's one that we need to pay attention to in terms of how we dismantle it to produce something much fairer and much more sustainable You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. You can follow the pod on Facebook and Twitter. It's at Poll Theory Other. If you like the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another show next week.